This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. A century ago, the United States had about 140,000 school districts, each operating one or more schools. Today, we have about one-tenth that number, about 14,000. The number of school districts changes over time as state legislatures decide to abolish some or create others. Every state has its own way of doing this, uh, but usually it involves local decision making, voters saying, yes, I want the change in boundaries. Or, and then, of course, you have to have legislative action at the state level as well. Now, most of these changes are consolidations of two or more districts. In rural areas, we've had to close down lots of one-room schoolhouses, and uh, of course, the school districts disappear at the same time. But every once in a while, you get a new district, uh, and uh, that happens when there's a community that wants to break away from a larger district, and then there can be other factors as well. So in Atlanta, Georgia, we have an issue surrounding the formation of a new neighborhood that might create a new school district. There's an energetic group in Buckhead within the city, a neighborhood within the city of Atlanta. It's been pushing hard to separate itself from the big metropolis. So I have today with me to uh, Maureen Downey, a reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution to explain uh, to me just exactly what's going on in Atlanta. Uh, thank you, Maureen, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me. So Maureen, first of all, before we get into all the heat and drama, uh, what is Buckhead, this neighborhood? How did it get that name, number one? I don't know if you can answer that, but what is it? Well, I think its name goes back a long time. We have a city of Buckhead in Georgia. Uh, I, I do believe it has something to do with deer, although I'm not 100% sure but it is the affluent neighborhood in Atlanta. And if folks come to Atlanta and they're doing a conference, uh, if they're going shopping, they've been in Buckhead. It's where the uh, bars and restaurants are. It's where Lenox Square is, it's where Phipps Plaza is, the Ritz-Carlton. Uh, so anyone who's visited Atlanta probably is, has been to Buckhead. Well, there seems to be a group that wants to make Buckhead independent. I suppose they feel like they're financing the rest of the city because they sound like they're, they're pretty prosperous themselves. That's true. And they are financing, uh, I mean, their taxes, their property taxes are, are critical to the operation of Atlanta and to the operation of the Atlanta schools. Uh, and so that, um, but what's motivating them to the driving force in the Buckhead cityhood movement was uh, rising crime and the sense that the mayor at the time, Keisha Bottoms, was not paying enough attention to what was happening. So crime is really wasn't the schools. This hasn't been a fight about the Atlanta school system and the quality of the schools that the students in Buckhead are going to. It's a really more of a community issue and a crime issue. Has the crime been increasing in Buckhead? Crime's been increasing across Metro Atlanta and partly tied to COVID. Uh, we've had a lot more um, robberies, a lot more um, you know, kind of crimes that get attention, carjackings, uh, groups of teenagers descending upon mall stores and uh, running quickly in and out with handfuls of stuff, uh, more break-ins, the kind of crimes that make people uneasy. 
Well, is policing an issue in Atlanta like it's been in Minneapolis and Portland, New York City, Chicago? Is this a big issue around the country? So what's the issue around policing in Atlanta? Is there a feeling that the police department is being dumped on or... Well, I, I think the issue in Atlanta, uh, the residents would tell you that there weren't enough police officers. Um, I, we, we have not had really the case of uh, wrongdoing or major wrongdoing. We haven't had a sort of high profile case where the police shot and killed someone. Uh, I think what we have is simply at this point, the sense that we don't have enough police for the rising crime. And of course, Atlanta has a new mayor. And one of the things that got Andre Dickens arrest, uh, elected, not arrested, elected, was his promise to crack down on crime. So Buckhead sounds to me like a Repu like it's a red community, like it, it votes uh, for Republicans. Uh, but there's a Republican legislature that was supposed to pass the legislation that would allow Buckhead to secede, and it, it didn't do that. So why didn't the Republican legislature do what the Republican community wanted? Well, I'm not sure if Buckhead is entirely Republican. I think it's probably a fairly diverse community politically. I think it's largely a white affluent community. Uh, but what the story of Buckhead is really the story of one, um, one man who moved here. His name is Bill White. Uh, he is um, a former Hillary supporter, now a Donald Trump supporter. And he led this, he, he started this in 2021, and he very strongly pushed this. Uh, and what happened is he alienated the Republican leadership for a couple different reasons. Uh, and they simply didn't stand with him on this. And this all has happened in the last few weeks. First, the Lieutenant uh, Governor who oversees the Georgia State Senate uh, refused to move on a bill and it would require a bill, require legislation. To, to move this along. And then the House, um, Speaker of the House joined in. So we have both Republican-led chambers declining to take this on. And one reason is, is that Mayor Dickens did a very good job when he was elected, uh, before he was elected and when he was elected of making friends uh, with the Republicans to the point that when he came to speak to the House, he was greeted with applause. So he had called apparently, um, Speaker uh, Ralston, Speaker of the House on his election day. And what he said, I believe, to all the legislators, including the Republican sponsors of this bill who did not live in Atlanta. This bill was coming from outside Atlanta because the delegation in Atlanta was, was Democratic and they refused to act on this. I think that the mayor, the new mayor, uh, persuaded them to give him some time to fix the crime problem. So right now, this movement for 2022 is dead. Now, certainly uh, Bill White and those who believe in this are not giving up. They promise they'll be back next year. Well, I, I, he's, he's charged with using uh, Trump-like tactics and having a, con a connection with Trump. And the Republican Party in Georgia has been pretty cross with Trump for some time, given the way in which the Georgia senatorial races worked out in 2020. Uh, so is this a little bit of a battle between the Trump faction and the anti-Trump faction inside of, uh, within the Republican party inside Georgia? There could be a little of that, but I, you know, I don't think anyone uh, running for office in Georgia, including our governor, uh, believes that he can snub Donald Trump. I and mean, we are seeing a lot of 
bizarre education legislation this year that is simply to woo these very uh, the conservative base. And um, uh, you, know, you might know our governor, Ryan Kemp, who is a popular governor, is being challenged by David Perdue, our, our senator who lost. And uh, David Perdue is, is really uh, stressing his ties with Trump. Uh, not that that seems to be, to be helping him, to be honest with you, but it is uh, to counter that, um, Kemp, I think, is pushing some, you know, we are, we are right on the train of the anti-critical race theory. We are going with the transgender girls ban, uh, girls sports ban. We have um, efforts to ban books. All of this coming with the governor's um, tacit approval. And I think all of that ties into the effort to be more Trump-like, not less Trump-like. What, what happened here was Bill White is, I think, as certain larger-than-life characters tend to be, uh, was polarizing. So, for example, two missteps that he recently made that cost him some Republican support. He tweeted, uh, copied a tweet about um, crime in majority African-American cities from a white nationalist group. Uh, that did not sit well with Democrats or Republicans or people in Atlanta. Then he also maligned the director of the executive director of our MARTA, our train, uh, mass transit system here, uh, committed suicide. And um, he suggested that the man had done so because of wrongdoing, with misspent money. There was no truth to that. It was total falsehood. And I think that that also made Republicans leery that he was sort of a loose cannon who would say anything and denigrate anybody. And I think it made folks worry about him. So it, it, how about the people of Buckhead? I mean, it, it, I, I realize this, this Mr. White is, this, you know, on his own campaign, but it, there must be some some support in the community. And, and I can see why people say, oh, well, why should we finance everybody else's education or police? And, and why can't we just take care of our own community? We'll do a much better job. Well, I think they do believe that on most of what you said, but not, not in schools. Because the interesting point here was that Bill White from the beginning said they would stay with APS, that somehow this new city would get around all the state laws and policy that would prevent this. But uh, when, we, when the AJC first talked to him, he didn't think this was an issue. He said, no, um, parents want to keep their kids in their public schools. And uh, about 60% of the children who were school age in Buckhead do attend Atlanta public schools. And they happen to have excellent schools in, in, in Buckhead, uh, as is typical when you have this kind of you know, wealth pocket in the city. So these parents were not uh, planning to lose their schools. I think, though, that they did not have a sense of how difficult it would be to become the city of Buckhead and stay within the city of Atlanta public schools. That was not likely to happen without a lot of effort, a lot of energy, uh, and the willingness of the school system to work with that. And I'm not sure they were willing. So that must have been one of the factors that then made it easier for the Republicans at the legislative level to so, sort of turn, turn a blind eye to this, uh, this effort. To some degree, I honestly, what was surprising is for such an important element, or it's been, a, it's been an important element in other cityhood efforts in Georgia, it didn't seem like the, the folks behind the Buckhead City movement ever got deep enough 
who took seriously the question of who gets the kids after the divorce. And you know, we, wrote, you know, we wrote more about it than I think it was actually being discussed. I do think that the, the crime problem simply was dominating and uh, that people felt like the city of Atlanta was turning its back on Buckhead and not putting enough resources there. So I think that people believed somehow the school problem would work itself out. But it is a complex problem given our state laws, which forbid new school districts. Uh, and um, so I, I think that there was a little bit of wishful thinking going on here. So maybe this has been a little bit of a tempest in a teapot kind of uh, thing, uh, a, a storyline more than uh, something that's really likely to happen downstream. I, I, I think it is, I wouldn't say it's unlikely to happen. I, I, I think there's a small chance of it because of all the issues involved, and including the schools. But of course, when I mentioned to you that 60% of the eligible children in Buckhead attend APS, Atlanta Public Schools, we have to say that 40% don't. They were in private schools. So their parents, their families, this is not an issue for them. So I think it would really depend on sort of who got the upper hand, who was in control. Uh, so I, I think we have to keep that in mind. This was not that everybody in Buckhead sent their children to APS. So uh, it's a 60-40 divide. Right. Now, and the 60% that do, don't worry about being um, uh, bused to another part of town. They have their neighborhood schools and they pretty much only people who live in the neighborhood attend those schools. Is that, uh, is that the way they do it in Atlanta? Yeah, there's a great deal of loyalty. There is not busing right now. There's some, there's some magnet programs, but mostly kids do go. Although I will point out in the area that would have been city of Buckhead, the schools in that area do serve 2,400 children outside of the city limits. So those kids would have been definitely in limbo where they would end up because if those schools did somehow go with the city of Buckhead, and that's a big stretch, uh, they would then be without schools because they didn't live in the new city of Buckhead. So that was, again, another group that never even came up because there were so many other fires to put out with this movement, but they never got that far. So tell me about this school board itself. The whole school board was up for election uh, recently, and, and usually you only turn over two or three seats at a time. So why was it the case that the whole board came up for, for election at the same time? Um, I, I think that is, is partly because we had some folks leaving the board, so they, they had to do elections for those seats, but we don't really have a lot of sense to our, our re-election laws here on school boards. So, um, but Atlanta, the Atlanta school board, I think is a fairly, um, I don't want to say well-regarded because nobody's ever completely happy with the school board, but people were not clamoring for a turnover in the Atlanta school board. I think that um, the Atlanta school board did survive the pandemic better than many other school boards around the country. So why was that the case? What was its policies that, um, I mean, because you, you had a lot of the school systems felt like they were being attacked from both sides. You had the people who said, we've got to remain closed and we have to go online. And you had other people that said, we have to be open. And the you know boards around the country had all kinds of combination solutions to this. So, 
and got in trouble as a result. Uh, the San Francisco board just got clobbered for three members that got recalled. Uh, so uh, how did the Atlanta School Board negotiate through this challenging time? Well, you have to remember that Atlanta, the school district is 20% um, white, I think 8% Latino and um, uh, rest of uh, African-American students. And what I found in Metro Atlanta, in our major school districts is that the school districts that were primarily African-American, they supported remote learning because COVID had a far greater impact on their communities. They were aware that people could die of COVID and they didn't fight the closing of the schools. In fact, they were supportive of going remote. They did not fight the mask mandate. So you could contrast both Atlanta public schools and DeKalb County public schools, primarily a black school districts with the school districts down the road, including Cherokee and Forsyth, which are major school districts, where in fact, there were, there were amazing battles. There were scary school board meetings that I witnessed where parents were essentially threatening the school board members about math and about remote learning. That did not happen in our primarily African-American districts in Metro, which included Atlanta, DeKalb County and Clayton County. They trusted their superintendents to, to the most part, but they also had a strong sense that COVID was dangerous to them and their children. So, so the schools in Atlanta in the last school year, were they open most of the year or were they closed most of the year or exactly how? Okay, they... Atlanta and DeKalb and Clayton, the three African-American districts were closed uh, much longer than other districts. We had some suburban districts that barely closed at all. Um, but Atlanta uh, opened, began this school year. Uh, so last fall, they began remotely and they phased in the return. Uh, while we had many districts that simply in August of 2021, they opened and uh, they just took their chances. So uh, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that those districts, again, did not have the parent revolt that we saw in suburban metro Atlanta. We had no revolt in rural Georgia because, frankly, most rural Georgia districts were open. They just well, never now, really closed. You know, Virginia is not far from Georgia. And in Virginia, uh, the school issue became a major issue in the uh, gubernatorial campaign. And some people say that's why a Republican was elected governor in in Virginia, but you're telling me that this is not a big issue, at least in the Atlanta metropolitan area. Well, I, I think, let me, let me clarify that. It's a big issue. It, the issue of remote learning and masks were a big issue in our suburban counties, but many of them deferred to the parents and did not require masks or, or limited requirement of masks and did not go remote for a very long period of time. The one difference between us and Virginia is that we, their governor, the governor defeated governor, alienated some parents with some of the statements that he made. Our governor is parroting the parents. That parents, you know, he's, he's got, he, our governor's out there, Brian Kemp, with a parental bill of rights, no discussion of parental responsibility in Georgia, only parent rights. And so we didn't have that adversarial thing going on with our, we, we are a Republican state in our Senate, a state Senate, state house, 
and virtually all the leading, every agency head, everyone who's elected at the state level. So I think that parents actually who were opposed to masks, you know, we were one of the very few higher education systems that did not require masks. So, yeah, well, uh, it sounds like the differences were, there were not, um, the, and also there was decentralized, right? The decision-making was left to the local school board. So where opinion was on one side, they could do one thing and where the opinion was on the other side, they could, they could do the reverse. They could, although the governor definitely came, came down against masks. And now I think he's got some bill that he wants masks left to parents, um, even though this is sort of after the fact. And I guess if he's planning for the next pandemic, I don't know. Uh, so it was left to the districts, but I will say that the governor, I think, was, um, he was one of those folks that said masks are a personal choice. Almost, you know, e even in fairly extreme circumstances, even when the pandemic was was, was quite, um, I, I would say, was you know soaring, numbers were soaring. He he really opted for, um, and you know, sort of not forcing the not forcing things on people. Well, in, in Boston and elsewhere, uh, school enrollments are falling. New York City is reporting a, a ten percent decline. Boston is. Uh, a lot of places are, are, are saying kids just aren't going to school. Is, is that happening in Atlanta? Is that happening we, in Georgia? We, we have it down slightly, but we are not as, um, we are not seeing the major decline that I think some other states have seen. Um, uh, our, our enrollment was down in some of the lower grades, particularly I think kindergarten first, but not so much. And I, we're not expecting a major enrollment drop here as, as this sorts itself out and next year. Well, I sort of feel like uh, life is returning to normal in the state of Georgia. And uh, so in maybe... some places it never went abnormal. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, when I talk to people in rural Georgia, uh, you know, I go to North Georgia a lot to the mountains, only an hour and a half from here. Honestly, there are people there who never stop going to restaurants. We would go into the grocery stores and, you know, sometimes we, you know, there'd be, I would say 15% of people shopping had masks compared to where I live. I live in the, I live very close to Emory University and Agnes Scott. And here everyone's wearing masks. They're still wearing masks. The children on my street are all kids, little kids whose parents work at the CDC. They're still wearing masks. Um, but I mean, I, I've been shopping where, you know, I've heard people sort of muttering, look at the sheep meaning I guess me and my husband wearing masks. So you have to remember parts of Georgia somehow or other just you know, kept going with this and sort of ignored it to some degree. Although you know, obviously we had people die across this state. So it was, um, you know, it's, it's, it'll be an interesting book for someone to write about how this sort of people resisted or pretended throughout this pandemic. Yeah, no, it is. Uh, the responses have been in the United States in particular have been amazingly wide ranging. So thank you, Maureen, for sharing uh, the uh, what you're learning on the ground in Atlanta and in uh, Georgia. Uh, thank you for uh, sharing these this information to our audience on the Education Exchange. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Maureen Downey, a reporter for the Atlanta Journal Constitution.
about the attempt by the Buckhead neighborhood to create a independent city and the other experiences that uh, people have faced uh, in, as the pandemic is entering its final phases, we hope. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.